Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Thane Menard, director of the Cincinnati Zoo. Thane, thanks for joining yeah, us Yeah, Mike, thank you. Before we get started today, I'm going to tell everyone who, about some of the shows that are coming up. Tomorrow, we have a fellow named Mike Kelly, who's a corporate executive here in Cincinnati, and he's going to tell us a personal leadership journey. It's a phenomenal story, and I really can't say much more about it than that. If you want an inspirational story... There is no better story than this. I, I heard this story about a year ago, Thane, and phenomenal. Next week, we have two really good guests. We have Scott Carter, who is the CEO of Lear Capital. They're a precious metals deal. They sell directly to the consumer, and he's going to talk about the value of having precious metals in your portfolio. The next day... A week from today, we're going to have John Morris, who's the president of the Associated Builders and Contractors Association. That's an association of merit shops or non-union. And then on the 4th of April, we have a really great show. Alan Bernstein, the president of BB Riverboats, is going to be on the show. and He's going to talk to us about his business and the tourist business and riverboats some cruises he's got planned for this summer, and he's going to talk about some of the plans he has for the Mike, Mike Fink restaurant. And if you want to say that Alan is part of my transportation series, the second and last show in the transportation series is a fellow named Ryan Mitten, who is with Ultimate Jet Air Charters. They're the guys flying the direct flights to New York, and I guess it's Charlotte, from Lunkin Airport. Great idea. Uh, we're going to have... Some great guests out into late April and May. We have Ben Moore with Agent Technologies. We'll be talking about uh, his CRM and ERP products. And Sister Jean Bissett, president of the DePaul Christo High School. They have a work-study program where high school students have to go to work. We yeah. should put at least one of them to work in the, in the zoo. Well, I know that's a good school, and I, they really get after it. Right. Now, uh, let me tell everyone about Thane Maynard. He's the director of the zoo and botanical gardens. The mission of his work is teaching and writing 
that mirrors the zoo to tell the story of the biological diversity, natural history, wildlife conservation to the general public. Uh, Thane is best known as a writer and host of numerous wildlife programs, including the daily public radio series, The 92nd Naturalist, that airs on stations across across North America. Uh, here in Cincinnati, what station does that air on? Here it airs three times a day, two times a day on WGUC, Classical Radio 90.9, and once a day on WVXU, which is an NPR news station, and that's uh, 91.7. Both are produced by Cincinnati Public Radio, but air on hundreds of stations around the world. That's good. Thane has been on the Good Morning America, the Today Show, the CBS uh, This Morning, uh, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. As a boy, he grew up in central Florida, the low country swamps, in the days before air conditioning and condominiums. Thane is a member of the leadership Cincinnati class of... 17. A trustee of the Hillside Trust. What is the Hillside Trust, Thane? That's a great local conservation group that works... uh, in Cincinnati proper, as well as in the tri-state, to say as we have these hillsides above, say, things like Columbia Parkway. Yeah, saying how can we protect those uh, rather than let that topsoil wash away and just turn into a giant mass. So it's a neat thing, really. The hills play a big role in the beauty of Cincinnati and a lot of the sight lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And growing up as a child in, in South Florida, did you play in the swamps? You know, we did. It's funny. I was just back from going to the Everglades last week, and as people might have heard, alligators are back. When I was a boy 50 years ago, gators were hard to find. You'd go out at night with your grandmother's flashlight, look everywhere in the water for a little red light shining back, and they were hard to find, and really it was not dangerous to jump in the water and swim at night and fuss mm-hmm. around. You don't want to go swimming in the water in Florida at night now. There are gators everywhere, every golf course, every city park. I went right in downtown, there's gators. So they're not going to hurt people, but if you went splashing around in the dark, you'd have some trouble. Downtown? Oh, yeah, downtown in my hometown, Winter Park, Florida. There didn't used to be gators anywhere near those lakes. They were way out in the country. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere now. Yeah, they really are. Moving in, I guess. Tough on small dogs, but not tough on people. There are six times as many alligators today in Florida as there were 50 years ago. Quite a comeback. Amazing. Yeah. We have friends who live in Hilton Head. <laughs> yeah, one... there's gators there. Oh, yeah. One morning, my friend woke up. There's some pounding on her front door. Looked out, and there was a six-foot gator on a porch. Wow. There you trapped. go. Oh, there Didn't you know go. how to get off. It was, uh, it was funny because I wasn't there. Exactly. <laughs> it, made, it made a great story. You've been director of the zoo how many years now, Thane? Six years. Six years. As you look back over the last six years, what are the uh, accomplishments that, that, that you've brought to the Cincinnati Zoo that you're proudest of? You know, it's interesting, Mike, to look at that because I was at the zoo a long time prior to being director. I've been there 35 years. And like a lot of people listening that may run a business, as you were coming up and working at that business, you maybe didn't, you know, act too cocky or think too cocky, but just a little bit. You thought, well, God, I can do this better than those guys. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. So how do you measure that at the zoo? It's about fundraising, right? Mm-hmm. Like every nonprofit everywhere, whether it's as big as the University of Cincinnati, you just raised a billion dollars, or it's as small as a local church project, everybody's out trying to raise money. Mm-hmm. Well, One of my big learnings is it's not as easy to raise money in big major gifts as I had thought. So what does that mean? Well, a lot of visitors at the zoo have probably seen over these last six years that we've taken our old parking lots and we're turning them into major exhibits because we moved our parking across the street. Mm -hmm. So while moving the parking and opening that new entrance has been a great leap forward that opened four years ago, boy, raising the money to fill those parking lots up has been something. When I was made director in 2006, I was so naive, though an adult, but still naive. 
I stood up in front of the board and said, we'll raise the $32 million for that Africa exhibit this year. People love this zoo. They love me. Come on. We still need $12 million bucks. So we've, we've raised 20 mm-hmm. and we have 12 to go. So we all have a lot to learn, and that was one of my big learnings. But we have had very good fortune during those six years to run with a major surplus that we're able to plow back into the zoo in the form of infrastructure repairs, major maintenance. You know, the zoo's 140 years old. We have a campus, 80 acres. We have, you know. Didn't realize it was that old, 140 years old. Yeah, founded in 1873. Some of our buildings, like our reptile house, oldest building in any zoo in America, has had animals in it every day that entire time. So imagine you're you're using a hose, you're cleaning up after animals. That's a lot of wear and tear on a building. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, that building's in great shape, and it takes a lot to keep it going. So by running a surplus, running a margin, as it were, we're able to plow that back in and keep our facility going. So we, we don't end up like the perils of Pauline. Oh, my gosh, we can't fix the roof. But or like it's the a museum task. center, which can't fix the, the cracks. Sure, and those are tough buildings. Those are great big buildings. You know, Music Hall, the train station. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may trust me. Our capital needs are at least ten times the needs of those buildings, but we get after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, you, you bring in the revenue either through admissions or events, sure. or... Well, you know, we're fortunate. We have great support. Cincinnati's a town that loves its zoo. Our zoo's been there a long time, mm-hmm. and we're really beloved in this market. And many towns love their zoos. There's no doubt about that. There's more than 100 towns in America who deeply believe they have one of the top five zoos in America. So that's a neat thing. Mm-hmm. There's some towns that don't have great zoos or embrace them, and they'd surprise you. Boston, Atlanta, um, San Francisco don't have great zoos. But we're fortunate, particularly for a market our size, really to have a zoo that's embraced and beloved. But we have a lot of good board leadership. Uh, local business leaders are on our volunteer board, and it is a governing board. You know, the zoo's not run by the parks or the county or the city. It's run by the Zoological Society. Mm-hmm. So my boss over this past three years has been Craig Meyer, who's the CEO of Frisch's Restaurants, and their big zoo supporter have been a long time. But anybody that knows Frisch's or knows the restaurant business or knows Craig Meyer knows he's a straight shooter. So, yeah, his message to me is no margin, no mission, right? Mm-hmm. So it's neat you want to save rhinos. It's neat you want to be involved in Africa, right? It's neat you want to bring in a new manatee. All those things are expensive. But if we're not running in the black, baby, we're not doing any of that. So we have to make sure that, uh, you know, we put first things first. And like every business, the first thing is our customers. You know, if we give families what they want, we'll prosper. Family entertainment. And Thane has agreed to answer callers' questions. So if you have a question, you can call 646-595-4916. We'll be able to uh, screen the calls during the commercial breaks. And then I, I, I do want to thank you again for showing up oh, yeah. on show number 100. Kind of our Yeah, that's fun. Congratulations. That's, yeah. As I said before we started, doing a one-hour show is a task and a half. Mm-hmm. I do a show that's a minute and a half, and you know you can imagine that's just a brief story and you move on. Right. An hour takes a lot of coordinating to get people out here and to do it. Right. Uh, when we used to do commercials for for uh, radio stations, I would go in maybe once every two months, and I would read for two hours the commercials that were going to run for the next two months. Wow. And that that was it. It wasn't much work. Uh, this is a, a different undertaking. And I do appreciate that you didn't bring in any snakes, alligators, yeah. <laughs> or, or other critters. Next time. Next time. <laughs> well, for radio, it wouldn't have done much good. So how do you go to market? How do you get the consumers in our tri-state area to come to the zoo? You know, that is an interesting thing because 
A lot of times when people think of a zoo, mm-hmm. you think, well, what the heck? Everybody, including two- and three-year-olds, know what a zoo is, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe. everybody loves animals, so they want to come down. And there is some truth in that. On the other hand, you're competing with lots of other opportunities for families. Families mm-hmm. are busier than they used to be. Both parents working, lots of soccer games, all the things for school. So it is a process of saying, okay, how do we out-compete in that market? So mm-hmm. we make the zoo a value. And we've done a couple of things in the last handful of years that have really helped us succeed. Number one, we've gone through really, really vibrant strategic planning. We worked with a guy named Harry Kansas, who has a terrific company in town called One Page Solutions. He's a Procter & Gamble alum, and as I'm sure listeners know, our community is blessed not only to have the Procter & Gamble company here, but also the people that represent that level of excellence, many of them retire when they're younger than you or I. Mm-hmm. And they still have a lot to give and a lot to do. And Harry's been terrific, very involved throughout this community and throughout the nation with conservation groups, a wide variety of uh, for-profit companies that he helps. For us, the key thing was to go through this process again certain six years ago when I took over and say, okay, really, how are we going to succeed? Because here's the level we are, but everything gets more expensive, mm-hmm. feeding a rhino, taking care of all these animals. So how are we going to compete with that and, and thrive? And grow. And so this will sound obvious, but in the process of putting first things first, sometimes the answers are simple. Going through that big process, we boiled it down to visitor engagement. Now, that sounds common sense. We're in mm-hmm. business having people come over. Why don't we do that? But zoos do a lot of things. We're helping save endangered species. We're running the train. We're doing all this stuff. So we were able to say, in order to do all of that, mm-hmm. we have to have more visitors have some people come more often because Cincinnati's not a tourist town. So how do we grow our membership? How do we get those members to come once more during the year? How do we get people to leave the zoo and through word of mouth, which is no longer by mouth, as you know, it's through Facebook, it's through Twitter. How do we get them to say not just, hey, you know, we went to the zoo, but to say, man, you've been over to the zoo lately? There's all kinds of stuff to do. For us, that answer, of course, is animals. Mm -hmm. We're in the animal business. So if people think back to 10, 20 years ago, you would visit a zoo including the Cincinnati Zoo, and it was a pretty passive exhibit or pretty passive experience. You'd walk along and, oh, gosh, there's a sleeping bear. Oh, wow, Mike, look, there's a sleeping monkey. Instead, what we're trying to do through having more animals out that we get out at the main entrance, so as visitors come in, they might get to see, touch, or have their picture taken with a an aardvark or a bat-eared fox from Africa or a giant snake around their neck. So personal experiences... But beyond that, in the exhibits themselves, try to have the animals be more active Mm -hmm. when visitors are there. How do we do that? Well, we hired a behavioral curator who is the most remarkable animal trainer I ever met. This is a woman named Megan Kate Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And the person she reminds me of is Jane Goodall, who I've been very fortunate to work with, the most renowned conservationist anywhere. So I know we're going to head toward a break, but I'll tell more about how we keep our animals active because that's a lot of fun. Okay, we're going to take a break here. And if you want to... Ask Thane a question. The number again, 646-595-4916. Let's listen to a Sandler commercial. This message is short and to the point. In business, you don't get paid for what you know. You get paid for what you sell. Yet many salespeople leave their skills to chance. They often think, let me think it over. They write proposals that go nowhere. They lower their price to get the order. They wind up chasing prospects through the voicemail maze. It doesn't have to be that way. The best salespeople were not born great. They learned it. I'm Mike Roth of Roth & Associates. We're famous for our expensive, 
difficult sales training. We're not for everyone. We build the best sales prospectors and sales negotiators on the planet. Are you in sales? Are you ready to get deadly serious about your career that feeds your family? Are you ready to make a change? Call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523. Sandler's most experienced trainer in Cincinnati, 646-6523. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. You've heard our commercials about sales and sales management, but you haven't made the call for some reason. Maybe you're having your best year ever. Maybe you think a sales development company won't work in your industry. You're different. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Maybe you're afraid that if you called, you'd buy something. If you're happy with all your sales and profits and believe you have all the answers or simply don't see yourself investing in yourself or your people, then don't make the call. We have nothing for you. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, mentoring, business owners, and sales professionals who are serious about their careers. So if you believe that Sandler Sales Training might make you better, faster, meaner, and stronger, call me at 513-646-6523 or register for our next open house. Roth & Associates, the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. You can check us at www.rothconsulting.net. Dane, before the break, you were talking about hiring a behavior animal Curator. Exactly. What does that mean? Well, that grew out of the strategic plan that said, okay, we want to have more visitor engagement, which partly measured in more visits, but also measured in more fun, more excitement when people were there. We pulled together, not changing our mission statement, but really changing our vision of what do we want to do? What's our number one goal? And that's to inspire every visitor with wildlife every day. That's what we're there for. And so by hiring a behavioral curator, who I mentioned before is a terrific trainer. Sounded like a good mission statement. Yeah. We're able to take animals that are in exhibits, whether that's our lowland gorillas or our tigers, and rather than just having them sleeping over on the side mm-hmm. or eating a piece of apple, at times using operating conditioning, getting them to show their natural behavior, such as a gorilla climbing way up to the top of the artificial tree in their yard. In the case of the tigers, have them coming right up to the glass. Mm. That's where the good. kid's standing there and then standing up against the glass where their feet are eight feet in the air. And here's this little kid right next to him. So that opportunity to show that kind of behavior has just been an absolutely terrific thing, a neat opportunity that people do see. They know that at different times of the day, in, a diff- in addition to our big shows like the bird show and the cat show, we also have all kinds of keeper talks, animal demonstrations, and opportunities to be close to animals. So I think the combination of a better entrance that opened in 2009, mm-hmm. a more active and inspiring place, really has been how we've succeeded. We've gone from a million visitors to a million and a half visitors over the six years. Hmm. That's a big increase in Cincinnati. Tell you. Without a dramatic increase in the number of hotel nights, makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, it's interesting that all the different programs in the community, obviously led by the Cincinnati Reds, led by Kings Island, you know, mm-hmm. really big seasonal draws, all those lead toward more people coming from out of town. But believe it or not, the zoo does as well. We're the zoo for Dayton, Ohio. There's not a zoo there. We're the zoo for Lexington, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. We're the zoo for Charleston, West Virginia. And all those towns have families. They have minivans. They want their kids to do things. And so we are able to measure it because when people come, we get their zip codes and they have barcodes and you know all that business. We have a fair number of families who live in Dayton but are members of the Cincinnati Zoo or live in Lexington or members of the Cincinnati Zoo. Mm-hmm. 
And you probably remember, and listeners do, when you've got little kids, you want to do things with them. You don't just say, yeah, we're just going to sit around. Oh, I remember going taking the little kids. Exactly. So uh, it's not that bad to hop on 75 and come on down to the zoo. So uh, that's been a big success, too, really saying, okay, we get folks in from out of town. Sometimes they may stay. Sometimes they may do a number of things. They might come to town in the summertime, see the Red Sea, King's Island, and see the zoo. Mm -hmm. Okay. You ever put together packages for all three? We do. We particularly work well with the Reds. They are terrific. They, um, of course, have a lot of home games. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of seats, so they're terrific partners. We have Reds Day at the zoo. They have Zoo Day at the Reds, where we take animals down. Six games a year, we fly our bald eagle, Sam, during the Star-Spangled Banner, from way above center field to home plate. So, yeah, the the Reds are terrific partners with the community and with the Cincinnati Zoo. That's interesting. You You don't lose the eagle. No, no, it's a trained bird. You know, it flies every day, flies, twice a day in a bird a bigger, show. Yeah, but that's a much bigger distance in the stadium. Exactly. Well, yeah, the way it works with animals, particularly warm-blooded animals like mammals and birds, is we're hungry all the time, so we eat a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So that old sign you see, will work for food. That that's was my how, dog. There you go. You can, train a, you can train a mammal to do darn near anything or a bird if you give it a food reward. So when that eagle flies all the way down, at the end you'll see the keeper gets it on its gloved hand, and then gives it a mouse. Mm, yeah. My dog's like, that's how I trained them to roll over. I had a miniature dachshund. Sure. Well, salespeople are the same way. If they didn't get a reward for making sales, they'd be like, oh, I'm just going to go play golf. Yeah, that, that that is one of the problems with sales teams that are on straight salary. Oh, yeah. Well. They're, they're harder to train. It takes more repetitions. But if you offer them a mouse, I'm telling you, Mike. Mm, I may play bat, that for a manager. <laughs> <laughs> we have a manager's forum in two weeks. Uh, it's, it's, it's always been my opinion that great salespeople do best in a compensation plan that's 100% commission or the equivalent thereof. And well, that, incentive runs the world. There's no doubt about that. And that is just as true in nature as it is with people. Well, there are there are other incentives other than money. Sure. Um, prestige and power are, are incentives that incent people. But if you want to build a, big, a great sales team, whether they're telephone sales, inbound or outbound, 100% commission is the easiest way to do it because the people who aren't good will quit for you immediately. Sure. You know, speaking of that, and I had said when we were talking before, the Cincinnati Zoo, in addition to being a place for families and kids and mm-hmm. moms with strollers, um, also, we have a sales team because we have a terrific setup of places where companies will have retreats or luncheons or meetings, and those can be as small as one room with a dozen people, or we have a facility for 450 people indoors. We've also had times where companies have rented out the entire zoo, mm-hmm. and it's an after-hours event, and it's their night. And those have been um, General Electric, Children's Hospital, the University of Cincinnati, Western and Southern. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities. and. Our salespeople would be glad to tell you what we do. How many salespeople do you have? Well, we have six salespeople, and it's in our group sales department. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a wide variety of things that we offer. Some of our best customers that have been just great because we've grown with them Mm -hmm. uh, are Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the Procter & Gamble Company, where they'll have off-site meetings. And once in a while, that's a big crowd, but most often it's it's you know part of a corporate group that might be 50 or less who, rather than just meeting down at their office or at a hotel, they meet at the zoo, they see some animals when the morning kicks off. Sometimes, especially Proctor folks will do this because they're so competitive, they'll have a break in the middle of the day and they'll break into groups and go out and compete. They'll do you know animal scavenger hunts all over the grounds. And like you said, 
about sales. It may not be about money, but they don't want to lose. Oh, tremendous uh, groups of people. Um, what are the opportunities and possibilities you see for the zoo over the next uh, few years? Well, we're doing two or three things that are really helping. One is the zoo's growing. You know, by moving our parking off grounds, that's allowed us to build newer and bigger exhibits. So we are about three-quarters of the way through of taking 20% of the zoo back, mm-hmm. back from asphalt, back from parking. There's nobody listening who would remember this, but when the zoo was founded, and for its first about 25 years of existence until the beginning of the 20th century, it was all zoo, right? There were no cars. There were no parking lots. There was no pavement other than the path where humans walked. But over time, starting at the beginning of the 20th century, Henry Ford killed the streetcar, which mm-hmm. used to subsidize the zoo. That's hilarious. And now they're building another streetcar. But as a result, well, the slow... streetcar's not going to come up to the zoo. For exactly. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. That would have been a good thing. You'll have to talk to the mayor about that. But you can imagine, slowly, slowly, 1910, 1920, 1930, suddenly 20% of the zoo was covered with asphalt. Well, we've slowly gotten rid of that, and now there's only one parking lot left. So when visitors think of the zoo, they might realize the three acres where we have elephants used to be parking. Mm. The eight acres where we're building our big Africa exhibit, which we still need $12 million for. Um, Anyone have $12 million? That used to be a parking lot. Jungle trails where we have our monkeys and orangutans and bonobo chimpanzees used to be parking lot. So we only have one lot left inside the original zoo, and that's our big back parking lot by our um, safari camp picnic area. Mm-hmm. But between now and when I retire, which is, you know, call that 10, 10 years from now, I'm pushing 60, um, we're going to do a couple of things. And one of those things is we'll finally get rid of that last parking lot. How many parking spaces do you have across the street now? We have a total of 2,400. But 1,900 of those are in the, the new area across the street with the bridge. Mm-hmm. 500 are still in that back lot. So we're in the process, slowly, slowly, of getting 500 more spaces over by our main entrance that'll allow us to then build a great big exhibit in the back. But it's it's a work in progress. We have to finish, you know, the Africa exhibit this June opens with some just some terrific stuff, a new lion exhibit, a new restaurant, a new cheetah exhibit. Next phase will be the African savanna. In a year from now, that'll have zebra and ostrich and antelope. And then eventually a big hippo pool, uh, which is the preponderance of that 12 million, because basically we need a $1 million hippo exhibit and about an eight million dollar filter because they poop in the water and they're, they're huge animals. You know, they're they're five thousand dollar exhibit and an eight million dollar filter. Well, because we want to have clear water. Anyone yeah. who's been to Africa and seen hippos in the wild is not pretty. I mean, yeah. you know, there's not clear water there. But here there'll be a behind clear water, so you can see them swim. And when they have babies, you can see the mother raise the baby. So it'll be fun. That, but that's a big dangerous animal. Right, it'll be behind glass. It won't hurt anybody. The hippos won't be able to break this thick glass. No, no. no. Okay, that's good. Yeah, there's all sorts of liabilities at a zoo, but having the glass break is one thing we ensure won't happen. Good, good. You said you're going to put a restaurant in this new area. Right. You know, it's an interesting thing, and I think uh, local listeners may appreciate this. The Cincinnati Zoo is a thrifty zoo that represents a thrifty town. And what do I mean by that? We are the only major zoo in America. Let's say, what would that be, top 20 zoo, the only major zoo in America that raises our own capital improvement dollars. We have to raise it privately. The other 19 get it from taxes. And that's not just, you know, Washington, D.C. or San Diego. That's uh, Oklahoma City. That's Kansas City. That's Dallas, Texas. That's Columbus. Uh, I grew up with the Bronx Toledo. Zoo in New oh York, my gosh. you can't tell from my accent. The Bronx is my favorite zoo. But anyway, as a result, 
we are by miles the only major zoo that reuses buildings, right? Our, our um, reptile house uh, used to be a monkey house. Our bird house used to be a reptile house. Our night hunters exhibit has been done three times and used to be our cat building. So you get the idea. Similarly, we're redoing our restaurant. Uh, why? Well, with all the renovations to the restaurant and a big deck and a big patio and all the new bathrooms and nursing areas, we're only going to spend $2 million. If we'd scraped it and built a new one, it would have been $9 million. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I have to raise the money, if we can save $7 million, bucks, we're going to reuse the building. So that's an interesting process. But when people come, starting in June, they'll be blown away because it won't seem like the same restaurant. You'll enter a different way. You'll come in. We'll have more opportunities for food to get through more quickly. But the payoff is you go out the back, and you've got a big covered a deck that's like a gazebo, an African gazebo, and then from there you go down to a patio uh, with shaded tables, and you'll be looking out on the lions. You'll be looking out on the zebras, and uh, it'll be the prettiest place in Cincinnati and certainly the prettiest place at the zoo. So a new, neat opportunity for us to, again, have a place where groups can come, in that case, after hours, and have all sorts of special things. Where else can you eat in Cincinnati and look out on lions? Is that going to be like a table service zoo or a uh, restaurant or a uh, cafeteria style? Cafeteria style in terms of getting your food, unless you're there for an early uh, morning meeting or an after-hours meeting, and then, you know, you can do it banquet style and be served, do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, during the day, though, when the preponderance of our visitors come, it'll be you'll go through a line and get your food and go out and sit. Cafeteria style, family you, style. Yeah. You bet. Okay, that's good. For some some reason, I had a thought in my mind that you ought to get uh, Jungle Jim in to operate the restaurant for you. There you go. Well, he gets it done. I know he's near here. Yeah, he's, he's right around the corner. Yeah. Uh, eventually, i got to get him on the radio show. Okay. Uh, we're about ready to take another commercial break. And uh, if you have a question for Thane, 646-595-4915. Uh, let's listen to a, uh, a short conversation I had with Tom Manning about his, his, the new marketing and sales program that I'm going to be doing with him April, May, and June. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Tom Manning to talk about the new program that uh, Tom and I are going to do in April, May, and June called Engage 2013. This is a program designed for company owners and CEOs. We'll start by saying program is designed to integrate sales and marketing and make investments in both much more cost-effective, returning a higher ROI. Tom, why don't you tell everyone why we're doing the program? Well, Mike, we noticed a long time ago that small and medium-sized companies, their sales and marketing are not really working in a coordinated fashion. Sales might be telling customers one thing. Marketing might have a completely different message. So we're trying to get sales and marketing in alignment, working together and becoming more efficient. Uh, what are people going to learn these three days? Well, like we have a three-day workshop series that are spread out over three months. It's the last Wednesday of April, May, and June of 2013. 
The first session is April 24th, coming up here fairly soon, and we're going to be discussing sales and marketing strategy. We're trying to get the, the, the sales department and marketing department working together um, so that they, their performance is improved. So we're going to get some strategy alignment. Tell us about what's going to happen on day two. Day two is coming up May 29th, and there we're going to work on tactics, uh, some actual tactical programs that you can implement. Um, we're going to talk about um, explore 25 different prospecting methods. Uh, not all of them are for everybody, but they can choose the methodologies that are appropriate for their company, their market, and their budget. Mm -hmm. And day three, what's going to be happening then? Day three is where we pull it all together. Uh, that's where we uh, help you develop uh, actual action plans, and we're going to actually uh, develop your company's story. We're going to figure out the unique selling proposition for your company and the key messages to get across on all your marketing and sales materials. We're going to use that then to also develop your uh, sales scripts and your sales templates. So by the time you finish day three, you're going to have a complete sales marketing strategy with tactics and complete action plans ready to go. might not be completed in the end of three days, but it, you'll be on the right road. Tom, if people want further information about the program, Tom, how does someone sign up? You can sign up on our website online at marketleaders.us. Good. And there they'll find the uh, matrix of investments for CEOs. And if the CEO would like to bring their chief marketing officer or their chief uh, sales officer, uh, those those prices are indicated on the website. Yeah, we have a breakdown for the three different days and what it would cost to bring extra personnel. Good. This is a seminar, an educational program for CEOs. People will be a little bit confused when they notice that costs more to bring your marketing officer or your chief sales officer as opposed to the CEO coming himself? Well, we've designed the program to be interactive and participatory, hands-on, and we have very limited space. Uh, we have 25 seats total. So, uh, so the program will be limited to the first 25 people who sign up and the first program date. Tom, what is the first date? The first date is April 24th. Thanks for giving this information to our listeners. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with... Thane Maynard for the Cincinnati Zoo. Thane, uh, if someone wants to contact you or the zoo, why don't you give them uh, a phone number, a web address, maybe even an email? You bet, yeah. Today, of course, looking on the website for the zoo is a great way to learn about a lot of things we're doing, and that's cincinnatizoo.org. But certainly you can also reach us. We're at firstname.lastname. And so I will give you the email address for our sales director, and she can either book your group or direct you to who you might need to talk to. Her name is Susan Raganesi, so it's S-U-S-A-N dot R-A-G-O-N-E-S-I at CincinnatiZoo.org. And Susan's terrific. Anybody in sales would appreciate talking to someone who's good at sales. So she's been terrific for us and has grown our group sales to be really an important part of our business. Mike, you'd be interested that for the Cincinnati Zoo to thrive, we've had to say, okay, look, yes, we have some more visitors. Yes, we have some more members, but our bills go up every year, just like every business leader that we're talking to. So how do we increase our revenue? And some of that is reinventing and using spaces more effectively, saying, okay, we don't only do group sales. We don't only do after-hours events, but that's an important part of what we do. And if we have the facilities, and that's a challenge here because we have lots of opportunity to do things outside. But as you well know, it gets cold in the winter. Cold in the winter. It gets yeah. hot in the summer. It rains. And so 
we built more and more either covered and shaded or even indoors and, and cooled and heated environments. So if a group's coming, they're guaranteed to have a good experience. So that's been a good thing for us. Frankly, as has been trying to improve our food when mm-hmm. visitors come. You know, it's funny to look at it today. You're able to tell what are the best-selling things we do, you know, day by day. Because not that long ago, all our cash registers around the zoo weren't even hooked up one to another. They were like independent little adding machines. They're mechanicals. Yeah. But today, by hooking all that up, we can tell on a daily basis. But visitors might get a kick out of our seasonal changes. Our two top-selling food items in the summertime are soft-serve ice cream and cheese pizza. And both of those, I think, is a good price item. Uh, you don't have to go broke trying to feed that if, say, you bring three kids to the zoo. And the soft serve, of course, you might get it when you come. You might get it at lunch. You also might get it on your way out. Sure. But that changes during our Festival of Lights, which is from Thanksgiving to New Year's. That's our actual biggest promotion of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have that at night during the holidays, and so our biggest seller is hot chocolate. Uh-huh. And so knowing that mm-hmm. sounds completely obvious, but we don't need to have as many people selling soft serve ice cream in December as we need to have selling hot chocolate. And I know if you run a restaurant, you're Craig Meyer, you're my boss at Frisch's, you'd be a, of course, the zoo's good at feeding animals, but not as good at feeding people. So it's been good to learn these things that's helped us succeed. It gives the customer what they want, mm-hmm. and it also helps us pay our bills. So those have been uh, very rewarding things that have helped us diversify what we do. Similarly with retail, uh, we used to have retail stores here, there, and around. Mm-hmm. We now have mostly our great big gift shop that you see as you're leaving the zoo, mm-hmm. and that gives people an opportunity to hit it. In foul weather, it's a lovely building to go in, and so that's been a great way for us to go forward, too. Yeah, we did a, a sales project with the Shreveport Captains about 10 years ago. We changed the name to the Shreveport Swamp Dragons. There you go. I don't know if you noticed in my training room, I have an alligator head from the, from the Swamp Dragons. And, uh, well, don't tell me it was a crocodile. <laughs> no, no, it would be an American alligator in Louisiana. There's a lot of those. And uh, we, we changed the food items. Uh, we uh, added a dragon egg combo. There you go. Which was nothing more than fried cheese with jalapeno peppers in the center. Yeah. But the dragon eggs just sold like hotcakes. That is great, and and they were like four ninety five for a plate of them as opposed to a buck for a hot dog. Really now, tell me what it was again. It was, it, it was uh, a jalapeno pepper in the right, center, right. covered with cream cheese. Okay, and it was deep fried in in, in, in a batter, and, and you got I don't know six or eight of them in, in an order, and you got dragon eggs. People loved them. <laughs> well, see, that's what's fun about being here because I'm learning something from you because I know at the zoo sometimes. We have food items that if we angle it and it seems like it's something you can only get at the zoo, that's pretty fun. So we'll we'll come up with our version of a dragon egg. Yeah. Holy moly, fried cream cheese. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Well, you know, the jalapeno, it started with our market research sure. of who our customer was in Shreveport. Louisiana. Yeah, exactly. I know. Then they put hot sauce on it and call it good. Well, man, we had a surplus of rednecks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it seemed natural to serve uh, a... Really spicy dragon egg. That's great. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, what do you think people are looking for in that zoo experience to add the next wow to their experience? Because you want them to leave with that wow factor, right? Absolutely. You know, it is interesting. Our zoo has long been known for its incredibly diverse collection. We're the first zoo that had a major insect collection 
We have 105 living species of insects. We have a great reptile collection. But at the end of the day, zoos are largely in the mammal business. Now, not only, as you said, we have Komodo dragons, which are great. We have bald eagles. We have uh, five species of penguins. But when most people think of zoos, their top five or ten animals are things like elephants, giraffes, lions, um, gorillas, cheetahs, you know, the whole thing. And so we're fortunate to have a very big collection of rare mammals. You know, we one of the few zoos has three species of rhinoceros. And, of course, we have four elephants, and we have a, a terrific exhibit for folks. To see. I, I thought I heard in the local news that Cincinnati Zoo was raising a baby gorilla. That we are. Baby Gladys arrived last month. She's quite a story because she was not born at our zoo. She was born down at Gladys Porter Zoo, hence her name. And her mother rejected her. Hmm. Most often, just as with humans, the best thing is for mom to raise the baby, for mom to breastfeed him, teach him how to be a gorilla. Mm-hmm. In this case, though, it was a brand-new mom, never had an experience, and wasn't interested. She pushed the baby away. They tried the next day to put it, push it away again. So they needed to find a zoo with an appropriate female who has experience, who could serve as a surrogate. So the good news is we have some very experienced grandmom and moms who don't currently have little babies. And over a period of months, they will literally take this baby in their arms and mm-hmm. take care of her in their family group, which is great. In order to get there, it's the most convoluted thing you ever saw in your life. We had to fly the baby up while holding it. This baby has been held by a human being mm-hmm. ever since the mom rejected it because gorillas don't put their babies down. They right. hold their babies. Now, think about that. Most animals won't, but most primates, monkeys and apes, hold their babies the whole time. After a month or two, the baby will hold on to the mom itself and just hang on to the fur as the mom moves around. So what we have down at our gorilla center, 24-7 on four-hour shifts, are volunteers or nursery keepers or gorilla keepers taking care of this baby. They put on a special top, a a big hairy shirt that looks like a gorilla. Mm -hmm. The baby hangs on to that. They literally hold him. They'll sleep with it when it sleeps. Now, before you think, oh, man, that's the most romantic, fun thing I've ever heard in my life, they are down in the gorilla center. Mm. So let me tell you, after eight hours, four hours of that, you're going to smell like a gorilla all week. No oh. doubt about it. So, so they're wearing a gorilla suit. They are, and the neat thing about it, they are bottle feeding it. Mm-hmm. But they're right next to those females that we mentioned. We've okay. got a female named Samantha who's a grandma. We've got Mookie. We've got others that are right there with it. They haven't yet gotten in with it, but they go right over, and, and the gorillas reach through and touch her. They're getting familiar with her. They advantage to hurry. She sees the moms. She smells the moms. She hears them. So she knows she's going to be a gorilla and live with them, not live in the human world. So mm-hmm. over the next couple of months, visitors to the zoo, once it's warm, will see baby Gladys come outside, may come outside with a human surrogate rather than the moms. Mm-hmm. But over time, and certainly I'd say by May, June, mm-hmm. she'll be with the female gorillas and out in the group and a lot of fun. And it's a good thing there aren't very many gorillas in captivity. There's 275 total in North American zoos, which includes Canada, the U.S., and and Mexico. So it's an important thing. They're very endangered species in Africa. How many do you have at the Cincinnati Zoo now? We have 10, excuse me, (laughs) sorry about the cough. We have 10 gorillas at our zoo, Mike, Mm -hmm. with the addition of this baby, which is terrific. And what's neat is she's not directly related to the male that we have, Jomo, so... Mm -hmm. About six years from now, she might breed with him, and we'll have more babies with her as the mom. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. You're going to get to keep uh, the baby gorilla? Yes. Gladys will stay here, and that's one of the reasons she came here. Since she's not related to our male, we're able to keep them together long term. Many animals in zoos, particularly critically endangered animals, 
are very carefully managed to try to avoid genetic inbreeding. Mm-hmm. With gorillas, they're probably the most tightly managed of any animal in history because none have been taken out of the wild for more than 40 years to come to zoos. Mm. So these 275 over time become more and more related as they breed through the generations. So long term, probably some new genetics will be added from the wild, but in the short term, we're very careful about who breeds with whom. Mm. Okay. Uh, a few years ago, uh, you had a program to breed rhinoceros. That's right. Sumatran rhinoceros. How's that going? You know, there's two species that when people think of our zoo, Google our zoo, that we are very famous for. One is Sumatran rhinos. We lead the world with that. And the other is the African cheetah. We have a big commitment to cheetahs in Africa as well as at our zoo. In the case of the Sumatran rhino, it's a challenge. They are the most expensive zoo, excuse me, most expensive animal in the zoo world to keep. So why would that be? Well, A, no one else has them. I wonder why. If if you're in a business and no one else is in that business, you might say, hmm. I got I a monopoly. That's yeah, exactly. Well, here's the background. Very endangered. Uh, mm-hmm. Most endangered animal in captivity. Uh, down to less than 200 in the wild. They used to live in a wide swath from Vietnam all the way across to northeast India. But almost all, they think maybe all, of the ones on the mainland mm-hmm. have been poached out. Wow. Unfortunately, there's a huge market for rhino horn. So the populations left are close to 200 on the island of Sumatra and about a dozen on the island of Borneo. Our scientists work very closely with them, go over every year, twice a year. Uh, the first born baby here, first born baby ever in captivity, mm-hmm. named Andalus, was born here in 2001. And we sent him back. He lives on an island in Sumatra and uh, has become a, a father over there. So, okay. so that's been a big success. The challenge is, though, and the reason no one else has them, is unlike the other three rhino species in captivity, black rhinos, white rhinos, Indian rhinos, those can all eat grass, which means they can eat hay, and that's not too hard to pull off. Right. You know, most of the hoofed animals at Zuzi Bay. We have plenty of that around here. These guys live in low basin rainforests, and they don't have any grass where they live. They eat from trees. So their browsers are not grazers. As a result, they need 100 pounds a day of Asian trees. So what are Asian trees, like ficus trees? If anyone has one in their home or office, it's a common house plant. Now imagine cutting the root ball off that tree. A great big ficus tree weighs 10 pounds. So let me tell you, it's expensive. We ship in every day 100 pounds a day for our Sumatran rhinos of uh, ficus leaves and fig leaves. We ship them from California on Delta Dash. And that's the only thing these animals eat? It's the only thing they thrive on. Uh When it's the summer here, we can cut... Local branches, you know, from oak trees and elm trees, and they'll eat that too, but they really are built to thrive, and all year long, every day, they get a preponderance of uh, ficus and fig leaves. Unfortunately, they're picky. There's a lot of different breeds and species of ficus and fig, and we try to bring in different varieties, because just like us, if you had the same salad every day of your life, you're like, man, I want a different salad, right? Okay. So it's it's something. They're the hardest animal to keep in captivity. Yeah, I thought that would have been like a koala bear, because of <laughs> Their food. They need eucalyptus. Similarly, yeah, if we don't have koalas full-time, we've brought them in for some summer promotions. But if you get them here full-time, you're going to be importing eucalyptus. Yeah, I I, I was up close with the koalas. Uh, there you go. In the uh, Sydney Zoo. Nice. Uh, we're going to take a, uh, a short commercial break here, and then we'll be back with Thane Maynard. If you have a question, this will be your last chance. Uh, 646 
Hi, I'm Eric Meyer with Sandler Training, here to talk about Rule 44. If your foot hurts, you're probably standing on your own toe. Here's an example. You go through your proposal with the prospect. Everything looks great. Your prospect is responding in a positive fashion to the information that you brought to the table. Um, everyone feels good. You wrap up and move forward for the order, only to find that the prospect says that they have to take your information to a committee. Now, at this point, you can get angry with the prospect. Why didn't they bring that up? Why didn't they tell you that they were going to have to take this information to somebody else before they could make a decision? Well, it's your job to ask the right questions to uncover roadblocks and potential problems ahead of time so that you don't find yourself scrambling at a future date when it's already too late. So take responsibility when the prospect brings up new problems and challenges. If you ask the right questions ahead of time, you can diffuse a situation before it's too late. And next time you're faced with the situation, the results will be positive. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Thane Maynard from the Cincinnati Zoo. Thane, we have a theory of operation here that simple solutions to complex problems are invariably wrong. Therefore, if you want to solve a complex problem, you have to use a complex solution. Maybe you could uh, give our listeners an example of a complex problem that you had at the zoo and the complex solution that you used to solve it. Absolutely. You know, zoos are famously in the animal business. And I can tell you from having spent my entire career working with animals and working with wildlife that for many, many species, their numbers are falling rather than growing. Uh, some of the most beloved animals in the world are literally at the brink of extinction. Both elephant species, four out of the five rhino species, tigers, lowland gorillas are wildly endangered far more than 40 years ago uh, for all sorts of reasons. But Trying to think of solutions and ways that the Cincinnati Zoo can play an effective role with that is indeed challenging. You put over the top of that that the landscape is literally changing in the form of climate change. Um, many, many tropical species that once lived in a lowland area, that lowland area is changing. It may now have water on it or near it, or temperature and plants may be shifting their way up the hillsides. The best example in the world is the Amazon Basin. Many of the species that lived in the lowlands of the Amazon are slowly, by the need of getting to the plants they need, getting to the temperature they need, working their way up the foothills of the Andes Mountains. And as a result, those kinds of complexities are really something. The neat thing about it, though, is twofold. One is, which is very heartening, the world is built to be resilient mm -hmm. and heal itself. Much the same way, earlier this winter, I was hit by a car while riding my bike and broke my collarbone. The doctor didn't fix it. He held it steady with the form of a titanium plate and nine screws while the bone has healed itself. In the last seven weeks, I've looked at these x-rays, and the bone literally, which was in three parts, has grown back together. Mm -hmm. The world is built to be able to be self-healing, and that's our hope for the future. But other hope are two things. Brighter 
people better educated, more experienced than ever are working on this. I have a daughter who's one of those people who, my goodness, is leaps and bounds beyond where her dad was at the stage where she is as a graduate student and working in Africa. So good people are facing these problems. And the other thing, of course, is what really relates to the zoo. The zoo is in the business of reaching the general public. Mm -hmm. You know, the zoo's not like the opera, which is terrific, but it's for a very narrow niche of America. Mm -hmm. The zoo's for everybody. The reason Frisch's and Kroger are a big sponsor is everybody who goes to Frisch's and Kroger comes to the zoo. They love us. We love them. So our message of what's it going to take to save rhinos, what's it going to take to save cheetahs, is an important message for everybody to hear. And here's why. Conservation will not work from the top down. The United Nations is not going to save the rhino. Hmm. Conservation is a function of billions of people making better decisions every day, decisions in the marketplace, decisions at their home. It's possible for people to live with wildlife. It's possible to save wild areas, as our country's done a great job, whether that's in Yellowstone or the Smokies or Glacier Park or Yosemite. It's possible to do those things, but not by chance. It's by millions of people saying we want to do that. So there's hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I remain very uh, joyful about the condition of nature. But there is a famous line from Wendell Berry, the poet of Kentucky, one of the greatest writers living in America. He's a small farmer, used to teach at UK. He's in his 70s or 80s now. And his line is, I remain joyful despite having considered all the facts. <laughs> we, we like to say it's much better to be an optimist than a pessimist. Um, the award-winning theory in psychology a few years ago went to a guy named Martin Siegelman, if I got that right, for writing a book uh, called Learned Optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's critical in business development world. It's critical in running businesses. Uh, perhaps in the short period we have uh, left, Maine, you could give uh, other leaders who are listening to the show a leadership tip. Sure. The Cincinnati Zoo's been here a long time, and it's had long-running directors. The director around the turn of the 20th century was director of the zoo 53 years. My boss, Ed Morosco, who was boss when I first came, was director 40 years. And both of those men are the ones who built our zoo. Mm-hmm. But that said, in the year 2013, we cannot manage the zoo the way we managed it 40 years ago, the way we managed it 20 years ago. Ed Morosco built a small corner city zoo into a major zoo. But he did it top down. He did it like a baboon, right? I'm in the animal business. That's a good analogy. It's my zoo. You're going to do it my way. That's harder to get people motivated if you're going to do business. My joke is we no longer run it like a baboon troop. We no longer run it top down. We run it like a Montessori school. And we've got people going off doing things. There are days I think, man, I hope we're going to be able to get that one and pull it off. But the ones that work, if you can run with them, are tremendously successful. Mm-hmm. And so having good people, people you trust, and people who you can help but are good leaders will help you push forward. The trick with the Montessori school one is you got to nip the ones that aren't working or the next thing you know you've gone broke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many employees do you have at the zoo now? We have about 225 full-time employees mm-hmm. year-round. Right. And we have about double that as seasonal employees who, you know, gearing up now as we head towards spring break, we'll start to bring in people to, you know, mow the grass and sell the cokes and do all the things that we do. So um, it's a vibrant place, but we're fortunate to have uh, as many customers as we have and as many members. Right. And you, you, your zoo is called the Zoo and Botanical Garden. Uh, we didn't touch much about that, but uh, maybe in a minute or two, can you touch the the garden? Absolutely. Side? Yeah, you know, 
as we said, everybody, even little kids, knows what a zoo is. And yet, ever since 1985, we have been the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. Uh, we're an official accredited botanical garden, which means we don't just have displays, such as tulips, right? Mm-hmm. But also scientific research on plants, plant conservation. But Cincinnati is a traditional town, Mike, and this goes all the way back. In 1873, when our zoo was founded, it was called the Cincinnati Zoological Garden. And Andrew Erkenbrecher and the German zoologist with him who founded our zoo had that Victorian concept that the zoo is a place to come for mm-hmm. cultural events, to come with your family, as well as to see the gardens and the animals. Ah, that's why the opera was there for so oh, yeah, many years. Oh, yeah, 53 years. We're proud of it. Right, right. Uh, so today... Uh, in terms of a plant exhibit, uh, what do you have planned for this season? Well, yeah, you can come this April. April 1 through the end of April, we have our zoo blooms. We have 105,000 tulips that will be blooming, and we have lots of other blooming plants as well. Basically what the zoo's done over the years, since we're open every day, is stretch our season. You know, we used to think our season was Memorial Day to Labor Day, but frankly, in a modern world of increasing insurance expenses and everything else, labor, you can't pay your bills. Mm -hmm. So we now get cranking March 1st, Mm -hmm. and we do our big membership push, and then April 1st, we do our big botanical push, and then May 1st, zoo babies, and then June 1st, and then June 1st, all our summer promotions, pushing all the way through the fall with Halloween, and then, of course, into the Festival of Light. So our only two down months we're open, but our January and February, we don't have as many attendants. Well, that's when you ha- want to have the Cincinnati Rotary Club out. Yeah, absolutely. Year. Let's do that. Okay. Thane, uh, I'm going to be, uh, I want to thank you for being here on the show. Yeah. I'm going to give you a, a copy of Sandler's first book, You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. There you go. Book about long term positive reinforcement. This is a great book. In the front of the book, you'll find a, a Sandler calendar with uh, our 40 hours of classes a month and a free training pass or two for you and your people. Well, thank you very much. That's neat. It really is. We've been doing a lot of leadership training and really trying to get everybody to play a key role. The concept of leaders at every level has been our new initiative under our strategic plan now, so this plays right into it, and I will share this with our team. And I'm going to give you a copy of one of the few uh, discs which has the first 99 shows in the series. That's great. Matt, somehow we managed to get them all on a DVD. And, wow. It's uh, amazing how much you can fit because it's got 99 hours of shows. 99 hours show. One That's DVD. Great. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Hey, thanks for coming, Thane. And, uh, Scott, why don't you uh, close out the show? Thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513 753 Nine four zero zero.